It's my great pleasure and privilege to introduce this year's ASTA lecturer, Professor Mark Knoll, the Francis A. McAnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Knoll used to teach at Wheaton College in Illinois, where he held the McManus Professorship of Christian Thought. He's a prolific author and many of his books have earned him substantial acclaim within the academic community, but he's also written for wider audiences. I think, for example, particularly of his Protestantism, a very short introduction published by OUP in 2011. His other recent books include The New Shape of World Christianity, How American Experience Reflects Global Faith, but the book that's perhaps had the widest impact is his The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, a book about anti-intellectual tendencies within the American evangelical movement. His academic distinction has been um, marked by his winning of a National Humanities Medal, um, which was awarded in 2006. Professor Knoll is going to talk to us this evening about biblical criticism and the decline of America's Bible civilization between 1865 and 1918. Will you join me in welcoming him? Thank you for that kind introduction and thank you to the theology and religion faculty for a very enjoyable week and for sunshine on Thursday, which is wonderful. In 1865, at the close of the nation's great civil war, American civilization was to a striking degree a Bible civilization. Nowhere in the world did such an extensive presence of the Christian scriptures exert such a broad impact on such a substantial portion of a national population as in the United States. The climactic public statement about the meaning of the war itself was delivered on March 4, 1865, when in his second inaugural address, President Abraham Lincoln, who was not even the member of a church, quoted the Bible four strategic times in that very short speech. Biblical allusions or quotations had informed many of the era's landmark expressions, like Lincoln's own early declaration in 1858, quoting Matthew chapter 12, that a house divided could not remain intact. They suffused the most popular song coming out of the war, Julia Ward Howe's Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory of the Coming of the Lord. For combatants, the American Bible Society and kindred northern philanthropies provided five million copies of the Bible or New Testament, or more than one copy per federal soldier. The South, despite its few printing presses and a boycott on trade enforced by the North, still managed to secure hundreds of thousands of scriptures for its armies, where the Bibles had a measurably stronger impact than in their better supplied northern counterparts. As only one of myriad examples of the riveting effect of such broad biblical distribution, no one who had been there could have forgotten the words that a Confederate captain standing near the evocatively named Shiloh Church in southern Tennessee in the morning after a horrific first day of battle at that site in April 1862 read from Psalm 71. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be put to confusion. Deliver me in thy righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline thine ear unto me and save me. More broadly considered, a sharp difference of opinion over whether scripture permitted the institution of slavery had contributed substantially to the antagonism that brought on the conflict. In addition, 
a general confidence, both North and South, of righteous biblical standing justified an all-out commitment to the war effort. In particular, the belief among Confederates that the Bible rightly interpreted sanctioned their cause may have extended the war a year or more past the time when rational assessment revealed the futility of fighting on. The character of the nation's Bible civilization in 1865 must be stated precisely. It was not the case that all Americans were regular Bible readers or that even a majority of citizens accorded serious attention to Scripture. The best assessments of religion, for example, among Civil War soldiers estimate that, despite prodigies of biblical distribution, only about a third of Northern troops, and perhaps slightly more in the South, practiced the Bible-centered faith. The key point is that in a society with a very thin federal government, except for war mobilization itself, with no mass communication, nor mass entertainment, nor mass merchandising, no serious intellectual or institutional competition to the Christian churches, and no national organizations that match the reach of religious voluntary societies, in such a setting, Bible-dependent ideologies, Bible-reference language, Bible-derived moral categories, and Bible-exalting institutions were compared to all other centers of value demonstrably ascendant. We've lost John Brown, but the lecture goes on. In addition, for this audience in Oxford, it's important to stress another overriding reality. The fact that the United States had forsworn church establishments meant that individual religious practices, including personal attachment to scripture, meant more for a bottoms-up culture than when scripture was embedded in the structures of church-state establishment. Yet after a passage of only a decade, America's Bible civilization was cracking. It would not be too strong to say that by the mid-1870s, though great attention continued to focus on the scriptures, the society was no longer ordered by the Bible as it had so recently been. Today, I'd like to explore the decline of this Bible civilization. Although the course of decline extended over decades, it was well underway within a few years after 1865. In fact, events taking place in the year 1876 revealed that serious changes were underway in how Scripture was functioning in American society. In this lecture, I would like to take up two particular questions, one historical and the other theological. The historical question concerns the relative importance of biblical criticism in propelling the decline of America's Bible civilization. The theological question is whether, considered by theological standards, this decline was a good thing or a regrettable development. The necessary context for addressing these questions requires lengthy exposition, which will be the bulk of this uh, paper. First, I outline the reasons for asserting that the United States had developed a Bible civilization by the time of the Civil War. Second, the paper shows how one specific controversy over biblical criticism from the year 1876 pointed to intellectual or narrowly theological causes for the decline of that civilization. But third, it then examines other events from the same year, 1876, that complicate the assigning of causes and effects. And last, I attempt historical and theological assessments of America's Bible civilization and its decline. We begin with an abbreviated history 
trying to explain the centrality but also the complexity of the Bible's place in American civilization. After intellectually turbulent decades surrounding the American Revolution, defenders of scripture as God's unchanging inerrant word had won a decisive victory over well-known popularizers like Thomas Paine, who proposed that the Bible was a myth-ridden and morally grotesque product of corrupted ancient civilizations. In that early battle for the Bible, effective teachers like Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale College, successfully joined popular versions of Scotland's common sense philosophy with traditional theological opinions to define the Bible as perfected divine revelation. Even more effective mobilizers of popular movements on the ground with Methodist Bishop Francis Asbury in the lead did an even better job inspiring whole communities to trust in the message of scripture, organize day-to-day -day lives around their own reading of the Bible, and order their communities by what they took to be scriptural guidance. That combination of intellectual leadership and extraordinary practical expertise created the antebellum Bible civilization that would eventually fade by the end of the 19th century. Thus, over the first decades of the century, the Bible became central for a whole host of beliefs, practices, habits, organizations, and expressions that in the aggregate created a civilization. A partial list can give some indication of what that civilization was like. The printing of the Bible was a massive enterprise led by the American Bible Society, but soon joined by commercial houses like the Methodist Harpers and Brothers that dwarfed all other publishing efforts in the new United States. Voluntary organizations like the American Bible Society and the American Tract Society flooded the countryside with complete Bibles testaments and Bible-related books and pamphlets. Students learned to read from Noah Webster's ubiquitous American spelling book and advanced through further academic stages with William Holmes McGuffey's eclectic readers, both of which contained great amounts of biblical material. The designation of American places with names taken from the Bible was especially prominent in the early 19th century as settlers spread westward throughout the continent. And so we have, and this is the uh, examination school, so give yourself a little test to see how your Bible knowledge is. We have Zoar, Ohio, Genesis 13. Ruma, Illinois, 2 Kings 23. Mount Tirzad, North Carolina, Joshua 12. Zela, West Virginia, Joshua 18. Promised Land, Arkansas from Deuteronomy 9, as well as 14 variations on Bethany, 16 on Bethlehem, 17 on Beulah, 47 on Bethel, 61 on Eden, and 95 on Salem. Into the 1840s and 50s, judges and learned jurists routinely referenced the Bible as the basis for the common law. Popular artwork, like Edward Hicks' many versions of the peaceable kingdom, brought Bible-themed images into Protestant homes otherwise suspicious of religious iconography. Hymns, paraphrasing, or alluding to scriptural passages were probably as important as scripture itself in grounding Christian messages in popular consciousness. Charges of abusing or neglecting scripture fueled the prejudice against Roman Catholics that flourished as an intellectual trope and that occasionally broke out into actual violence, as in the Philadelphia Bible Wars of 1844 that left dozens dead and many more injured. Women. African Americans and Native Americans found in their own perusal of scripture a rock in a very weary land. Slogans like, no creed but the Bible, and 
The Bible only sparked the creation of significant religious movements like uh, those leading to the churches and disciples of Christ. Other innovative religious leaders, with Joseph Smith in the lead, bestowed the sincerest form of flattery on the Bible by creating their own scriptures in the format and language of the King James Version. And that King James Version was everywhere, providing phrases, cadences, catchwords, and a ubiquitous background presence. Until the expansion of the railroads and then the Civil War itself, it is no exaggeration to say that the King James Version, more than any other single thing, was the most per pervasive cultural object of any kind in American national life. In some, America's Bible civilization certainly did involve a strong intellectual factor, the conception of Scripture as God's inerrant, infallible word, but it also involved much more as a literary, aesthetic, cultural, political, and social force. And now the place of biblical criticism in undermining that Bible civilization can be illustrated by what happened on the evening of 21 September 1876. Put more precisely, it was not biblical criticism as such, but arguments over the biblical criticism that was at last showing up in prominent ecclesiastical venues that signaled a weakening of the nation's Bible civilization. The event was the inaugural address by the Davenport Professor of Hebrew and the cognate languages at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Speaking was the 35-year-old Charles Briggs, who had enjoyed an excellent education at the University of Virginia, Union Seminary itself, and then the University of Berlin, before serving briefly as a Presbyterian pastor and then returning to Union as a professor. Union Seminary had been founded in 1836 as an institution of advanced theological study serving the New School Division of the American Presbyterian Church. In contrast to the denomination's old school faction, New School Presbyterians were more attentive to American circumstances and less narrowly concerned about upholding strict Calvinist standards. But with their old school colleagues, New School Presbyterians were strongly committed to the ideal of a learned ministry and so had supported high intellectual standards for the faculty at their seminaries. In 1876, with approximately 150 students, Union was among the largest theological seminaries in the country, which meant that it made up one of the largest and most substantial contingents of advanced students of any kind. In 1876, university-level graduate education was still in its infancy, with the first American PhD having been granted at Yale only 15 years before. In other words, what the young professor said at this particular institution meant a great deal more than a comparable event would have meant 50 years later when graduate education had developed in all the arts and sciences and when theological seminaries had lost the intellectual preeminence they enjoyed throughout the first two-thirds of the 19th century. The timing of Briggs' inaugural address was also significant because of recent rumblings in the broader world of Protestant biblical scholarship. In continental Europe, innovative theories about the status of the Bible, the method of its composition, and the proper approach to its interpretation had been gaining force since early in the 18th century. These innovations had all, one way or another, questioned the unique status that Scripture traditionally enjoyed in Western Christendom. Already in the 18th century, these innovations included the assertion that Scripture should be studied 
with the same historical and critical tools that leaders of Europe's enlightenment deployed on other ancient texts. And the claim that proper historical work necessitated rethinking traditional views about the Bible's composition. For example, the Pentateuch had been authored by Moses or that the book of jo Jonah recorded actual history. In the 19th century, the neologisms in biblical scholarship became more daring. Scholars well-trained in ancient languages and fully attuned to cutting-edge intellectual fashions claimed that ancient Hebrew history shared the same natural evolution of religious sensibility as Israel's pagan neighbors and that the miracles ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament should be regarded as typical myths of a pre-critical culture. In Britain and North America, a combination of church, educational, and social forces had mostly insulated traditional Bible believers from these newer critical views. Battles aplenty always existed over how to interpret the God-given scriptures with state church Anglicans in dispute with free church dissenters, Baptists and Presbyterians fighting over the mode of baptism, Calvinists and Arminians debating free will and, and uh, predestination, and Protestants of every sort always using their Bibles militantly against Roman Catholics. But on the question of the Bible status itself, the conservatism of church institutions, the polemical skills of conservative theologians, and especially in the United States, the conservative instincts of a democratic citizenry devoted to reading the Bible for itself, these conservative forces combine to secure traditional confidence in the comprehensive facticity bedrock historicity and infallible authority of scripture. In 1876, that confidence was shaking. More and more bright young scholars like Charles Briggs were traveling for education to the continent and coming back deeply impressed with what they had learned from the world's acknowledged leaders of advanced scholarship. Only one year before, in 1875, the rising intellectual star of the conservative Free Church of Scotland had created a sensation when his article on the Bible appeared in a new edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. This Scott, William Robertson Smith, had boldly appropriated German critical theories while holding them together with a still traditional understanding of Christian theology. A whirlwind of controversy arose in the wake of Robertson Smith's article. The Scottish Free Church tied itself in knots over how to respond and some Americans like Charles Briggs were eager to join the fray. Briggs' lecture of September 21st, 1876 was not radical by European standards, but in an American setting that had long resisted the newer higher criticism, it was startling. Early in his address, Briggs noted accurately what was at stake for groups that had relied implicitly on the Bible's integrity. In his words, the whole of theology depends upon the exegesis of the scriptures, and unless this department be thoroughly wrought out and established, the whole structure of theological truth will be weak and frail. But then Briggs went on to suggest that it was not only appropriate but necessary that those who claimed to believe the Bible had to do the necessary homework in order to understand how the scriptures were written. At this point, Briggs acknowledged the influence of his German professors and announced his intention to set aside long-cherished convictions. Those questions, he said, of composition and the like, must be settled partly by external historical evidence, but chiefly by internal evidence, such as the language, style of comp composition, archaeological and historical traces, 
the conception of the author respecting the various subjects of human thought and the like. Most importantly, in carrying out such studies, he said, we have nothing to do with traditional views or dogmatic opinions. Then Briggs explained exactly what the new scholarship required. He said, whatever may have been the prevailing views of the Church with reference to the Pentateuch, Psalter, or any other book of Scripture, they will not deter the conscientious exegete and instant from accepting and teaching the results of a historical and critical study of the writings themselves. And he took a dig at the conservative traditions that had dominated American appropriation of the Bible. It is just here that Christian theologians have greatly injured the cause of the truth and the Bible by dogmatizing in a department where it is least of all appropriate and indeed to the highest degree improper as if our faith depended at all upon these human opinions respecting the word of God. Briggs was, Briggs was arguing that the Bible could remain relevant as the word of God in the modern scholarly world, but only if Bible readers did not back themselves into obscurantism and anti-intellectualism as they appropriated the scriptures. Although only a squall of controversy greeted the publication of Briggs' inaugural address, it was the opening outburst in what would soon become an American tsunami of argumentation about the character of scripture itself, and within a decade, a half a decade, of Briggs' inaugural address, controversy over biblical criticism engulfed the leading academic periodicals of the Presbyterians, who were widely perceived as the intellectual guides for American Protestants as a whole, Within two decades, Briggs had been censured by the Presbyterians for teaching unacceptable views and was forced out of the Presbyterian ministry. As a consequence, Union Seminary chose to support its most famous professor and followed Briggs out of the Presbyterian Church to become an independent theological school. By the time that step took place, the Congregationalists, Episcopalians, Methodists, and even some Baptists were also embroiled in internal debates on the character of Scripture, the appropriateness of using modern biblical criticism, and the effects on ordinary Bible readers of the new critical views. Significantly, and this actually is an important point, significantly, these great Protestant denominations were the very ones that had been so important in the decades between the American Revolution and the Civil War in shaping American civilization according to norms they took from the Bible. The significance of what transpired in 1876 can be stated simply. Before that time, Americans certainly knew about many of the new ideas that questioned the traditional understanding of Scripture as the fully inspired Word of God. But those ideas had been marginalized intellectually and quarantined institutionally. After 1876, debate over the character of the Bible and over how best to study, understand, and interpret the scriptures move center stage among all major Christian and Jewish groups. In some of the groups, newer critical views came to prevail, in some they did not. In many, the debate over biblical higher criticism that began in earnest in the 1870s and 80s has continued to this day. For the broader American landscape in which these intra-ecclesiastical debates occurred, there was a more general change. Before the latter decades of the 19th century, for most American Christians, most of the time, the overwhelmingly dominant concern had been how to put the Bible's message to work. 
From this point onward, that earlier concern did not vanish, but it was forced to compete with a large set of new concerns. Thereafter, among many American Christians for much of the time, controversy over the Bible, oh, sorry, controversy over what the Bible was and how it should be read absorbed an immense amount of time and energy that had previously been spent on what the Bible said and how it should be followed. One of the best assessments of the changing theological landscape after 1876 was provided some 30 years ago by Grant Wacker, who is now at the Duke Divinity School in an essay entitled The Demise of Biblical Civilization. Wacker's essay remains persuasive that from the 1870s and 80s, the meaning of biblical authority altered dramatically for a large number of leading Protestant thinkers, with Briggs of Union Seminary and William Rainey Harper of Yale and then Chicago in the lead, but many others following along as well. In Wacker's term, terms, the ide ideation, ideational revolution they advanced was the belief that culture is the product of its own history, that in short, modern historical consciousness necessitated the re realization that ideas, values, and institutions of every sort are wholly conditioned by the historical setting in which they exist. These convictions were strongly influenced by books like Essays and Reviews, the 1860 collection from learned Oxford Dons, whose specters hover around us today, by the imprimatur for advanced German scholarship coming from Robertson Smith, and by the extensive study that many of these American Protestants themselves undertook in Germany. The result for many theological leaders was to reject notions of biblical inerrancy, to reinterpret the miracle stories of scripture, to reorient hope for salvation toward imminent processes in history, and to regard the Bible itself as inspiration for ongoing human development rather than a fixed, changeless word of God for all time. Considered intellectually and theologically, Wacker's essay remains convincing. When strategically influential leaders imported biblical higher criticism into the churches that had successfully promoted a strongly Protestant Bible as a comprehensive foundation for an entire social order, the earlier Bible civilization could not survive. But recent historical investigation has demonstrated that more was at stake when some prominent Americans began to advocate the newer views of historical consciousness, evolutionary progress, and human moral development. Advanced European historicism associated with higher criticism was important, but it arrived in an America already prepared for such intellectual novelties by circumstances having little to do with biblical criticism. In this broader picture, advanced historicist views of the late 19th century arose in response to internal American events more than to the books of Oxford scholars, the influence of Scottish Presbyterians, or even the higher criticism of Germany. The best statement of this larger picture has come in a 2012 book by Mary O'Shotts entitled Slavery and Sin, The Fight Against Slavery and the Rise of Liberal Protestantism. O'Shotts treats many of the same individuals who appear in Grant Wacker's essay but she suggests that the greatest impetus behind the newer views of scripture in the 1870s came not from imported influences, but from one particular domestic crisis, namely antebellum controversy over slavery. That controversy had featured fiercely contested questions. Could slavery as an institution 
be defended as biblical? Was it possible to attack slavery using the conventional view of the Bible that prevailed in antebellum America? Oshatz concludes that in the antebellum period, those who defended slavery, those who defended slavery as a biblical institution were largely triumphant. Given the dominant understanding of scripture as a source of timeless, unquestionable truth, when the biblical defenders of slavery cited texts that simply took slavery for granted, texts piled up from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Gospels, Philemon, the, the, uh, and 1 Corinthians and other epistles, they were convincing. Antebellum emancipationists, try as they might to show how the spirit of the Bible opposed slavery, fought a losing battle in the particular hermeneutical environment of antebellum America. That climate, which had become integral for an entire civilization, dictated that the Bible be interpreted through common sense, popularly understood, that it must stand open to democratic apprehension by all, and that it must be defined as universal, unchanging truth from God. The result for these emancipationists was to seek a new understanding of scripture, or at least to be receptive when new understandings appeared as they did soon after the Civil War. Oshatz's summary stresses the continuity between the earlier American debates and the later turn to a historicist understanding of scripture. She, she has written, the antebellum world had envisioned a static commensurability between Protestant belief and universal forms of knowledge. The Protestant acceptance of historicism, informed by anti-slavery, evolution, and historical criticism, replaced this relationship with a dynamic, evolving form of commensurability. Anti-slavery arguments implied what liberal Protestant treatises avowed. The meaning of revelation depended, developed through time in relationship to human history, and scripture could not be taken literally but had to be interpreted according to the always developing Christian consciousness. In the second half of the 19th century, anti-slavery, emancipation, Darwinian evolution, and biblical criticism each contributed to the modern conviction that truth and meaning are inseparable from the process of history. In Oshatz's conclusion, we hear echoes of Wacker's argument, but our attention is also drawn to the United States' own internal history as a prime cause for the emergence of higher critical views. My own summary at this point is to say that civilizations are built of many factors with a tight inter interdependence of the intellectual and the material, or what might be called embodied and spiritual forces. So understood, the Bible has always furnished a huge array of materials useful for the shaping of civilization. All such materials are in some sense intellectual and theological, but many appear more obviously as organizational, psychological, aesthetic, physical, liturgical, or linguistic. Moreover, relationships among the biblical materials are interwoven very tightly. In the history of America's Bible civilization, intellectual challenges played a necessary part in the great changes at the end of the 19th century. But these intellectual challenges were thoroughly entangled with demographic, social, and political changes as well. And so then on to the third part of the talk that tries to look at this broader historical view. When we return to 1876, the year of Charles Briggs' controversial advocacy of biblical criticism at Union Seminary, we see several other important developments concerning scripture. 
In fact, the indices of change in 1876 went far beyond biblical scholarship per se. Also at work, for example, were new developments in the law. Throughout spring and summer of 1876, the U.S. Congress engaged in somewhat desultory debate on an amendment to the Constitution proposed by the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, James G. Blaine of Maine. Blaine wanted to be the Republican Party's candidate for president in 1876 in succession to Ulysses S. Grant, who was coming to the end of his second term. But in 1875 and 76, the Republicans were in political trouble. National political uneasiness had been manifest in the congressional elections of 1874, when for the first time since the Civil War, Democrats gained control of the House of Representatives and thus ousted Blaine from his post as Speaker. Blaine, who was seeking a way to distract attention from the Republicans' many problems, hit upon the idea of a constitutional amendment. His goal was to divert attention away from Republican corruption and resentment at post-war reconstruction in order to refocus it on immigration, religion, and partisan politics. The Blaine Amendment, introduced to Congress in December 1875, followed up an earlier proposal from President Grant to prohibit any tax money raised, and now I'm quoting, for the support of the public schools to be used under the control of any religious sect. In other words, the Blaine Amendment would prohibit any tax money for anything but public schools. Everyone knew immediately what Grant, Blaine, and the Republicans were up to. The tides of immigration flowing strongly from the 1830s had brought an unprecedented number of Roman Catholics into the country. Increasingly as Catholics and then a smaller number of Jews and free thinkers sent their children to the nation's public schools, they were deeply offended at the strongly Protestant character of those schools. The main manifestation of that Protestantism was the nearly universal mandate by public school societies to read daily from the King James Version of the Bible. Almost all of the nation's Protestants supported this mandate, even as they proudly heralded the glorious constitutional principle of religious freedom. From a contemporary perspective, the Protestant position of the 1870s looked self-contradictory. But for much of the 19th century, it made perfect sense. The nation's founders had repeatedly articulated the strongly Republican principle that without a virtuous populace, democratic government was doomed to corruption and tyranny. What better way could there be for ensuring virtue in the citizenry, as one senator put it in his support of the Blaine Amendment, than pr by promoting that religion which is our history, which is our unwritten as well as our written law, and which sustains the pillars of liberty? And in order to make sure that the religion promoting virtue among Republican citizens did not verge over into a religious establishment, the perfect vehicle was at hand, the non-sectarian King James Bible. This virgin did not belong to Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, or Disciples of Christ. It belonged instead to all of the religious traditions whose members had done so much to establish the United States and set the nation on its course of liberty for all. When, in the summer of 1876, the U.S. Senate took up the Blaine Amendment, it added a clause reflecting the Republican and Protestant consensus about a non-sectarian Bible. The clause read, this article shall not be construed to prohibit the reading of the Bible in any school or institution. The amendment, in other words, was designed explicitly to frustrate efforts by Catholic parents 
who contended that tax-supported schools mandating reading from the Protestant King James Version violated their religious freedom. For the most part, Catholics did not object to the Republican reasoning that saw Bible reading as necessary for, vir for virtue without which republics were doomed. They did, however, insist that they not be forced to pay for instruction in public schools that forced Catholic children to read from the Protestant King James Version. The broader significance for the Bible in the debate over the Blaine Amendment concerned the shaking of assumptions that had once been simply taken for granted. Primary among those assumptions was the conviction that Bible reading in the schools was ideal for strengthening Republican government as well as their, the belief that reading from the King James Version was ideal for promoting Republican virtue while preserving the separation of church and state. An even more fundamental assumption held that the United States, in a generic Protestant sense, was a Christian country where generic Protestant convictions, habits, instincts, and agendas contributed fundamentally to the survival of American liberty. When the United States Congress debated the Blaine Amendment, the former assumption still prevailed widely, but no longer decisively, no longer universally, no longer axiomatically. For, America, for American law, in the summer of 1876, America's Bible civilization had cracked. So let me try to talk through this next event from 1876. It, it brings a different perspective to uh, broader events in the American situation. Less than two months after Charles Briggs delivered his inaugural address that uh, uh, drew attention to the importance of German biblical higher criticism, a very different kind of meeting uh, took place in Swampscott, Massachusetts. This was uh, a meeting convened by a small group of Presbyterians and Baptist ministers who had grown excited about a new way of reading the Bible that, could, that was as far removed from the standards of German biblical higher criticism as it's possible to uh, imagine. This first meeting was called the Believers Meeting for Bible Study. After a couple of years in Swampscott and I think one or two other locations, it finally settled at the Queen's Royal Hotel at Niagara-on-the-Lake in southern Ontario, after which for many years the, the annual Niagara Conference featured this new way of interpreting and applying the Bible. This new way was a world removed from the uh, preoccupations of Charles Briggs. The Niagara folk wanted to reassert the supernatural character of the Bible over against the natural. They wanted to reassert common sense readings over against scholarly readings. They wanted to reassert readings that drew the Bible closer together rather than separated the Bible into different parts. They were promoting what uh, then and now was, is known as premillennial or dispensational readings of uh, the Bible. Uh, these uh, individuals were, uh, were worried about the course of biblical learning in general, and their move was a, a strong counteraction to, to, the, to the new uh, standards of biblical criticism coming into places like Union Seminary. The um, thing that made th th these movements in 1876 with the dispensationalists and premillennialists important for the nation is the way in which their approach to scripture led them to a different social outcome than had prevailed earlier in American history from people who took the same kind of approach to the Bible. In many ways, the people who gathered at Niagara, Swampscott first and then Niagara, 
were repeating approaches to the Bible that uh, well-known revivalists like Charles Grandis and Finney had used in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. The major difference in the 1870s was that the Swampscott and then Niagara dispensationalists were withdrawing from society. Finney's common sense biblicism led him on to support anti-slavery, temperance, and a wide variety of other reforms in American life. The dispensationalists in the 1870s and 1880s turned aside from social reform as a liberal policy and set themselves more to understanding the future, which they saw as impending with God's judgment upon not just the United States, but all of, all of the, uh, the world. Finally, we turn to one additional venue relevant for America's Bible civilization as it existed in 1876, and this is the venue of national politics. This is doubtless an audience of historically-minded sophisticates, so you know the kind of game I've been playing with you and focusing upon 1876. If people about, uh, know anything about the United States political history, they know about the presidential election of 1876, in which the, uh, the candidate who won the, the fewer votes the Republican candidate was actually named president over the candidate, the Democrat, who won the most votes. Uh, I'd like to suggest that this, uh, the events having to do with the presidential election of 1876 uh, might provide the clearest indication of why America's Bible civilization was collapsing in the 1870s. In the disputed election of 1876, the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes of Ohio gained the White House despite receiving 3% fewer popular votes than his Democratic opponent, Samuel J. Tilden of New York. Tilden had campaigned aggressively for a pullback of federal authority in all areas of national life, and he did fairly well in the North, and he swept the Southern states that had been returned to local control with the withdrawal of Union troops after the Civil War. In three former Confederate states, where significant numbers of African Americans still voted and significant numbers of ex-Confederates were still kept from the polls, the popular totals were too close to determine a clear winner. A federal commission, which ignored both the violent intimidation that had kept blacks from the polls throughout the Democratic South and what probably were narrow victories for Tilden in the disputed states, tallied the electoral count as 185 for Hayes and 184 for Tilden. In return, the Republicans agreed to end congressionally mandated reconstruction, which led immediately to the withdrawal of troops from the former Confederacy. They also agreed to return state governments in Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina into the hands of ex-Confederate white leaders. In the two years preceding 1876, Democrats in Mississippi had shown what the return of white rule would mean in the former Confederate South as systematic terrorism against African Americans and their Republican allies began the process of fastening Jim Crow segregation upon the government and the public life of Mississippi. The Bible came into play in this particular election only marginally. Supporters of a white-only politics did resuscitate the myth of Ham from Genesis chapter 9, even if scholars of all shades had long since demonstrated that this story had nothing to do with modern ethnicities. Still, the malediction pronounced by Noah upon his son Ham, that Ham's offspring Canaan would be cursed and become a servant of servants unto his brethren, 
served as partial justification for the atrocities used, as the contemporary phrase had it, to redeem Southern life from Northern oppressors. The larger story about scripture concerned what did not happen. On one side, revival energy flagged. The testimony against slavery that Charles Finney had once joined to his zeal for saving souls had mostly passed from the scene. The leading American evangelist of the postbellum period was D.L. Moody, a close friend of General O.O. Howard, the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, after whom a prominent African-American university in Washington, D.C. is named. Moody had been inclined during his early years to act with considerable fairness toward African-Americans. Yet in this very year, 1876, when he conducted a preaching campaign in Augusta, Georgia, and local white leaders insisted upon segregating the audience, Moody reluctantly gave in to their wishes. Until the mid-90s, and despite a willingness to speak before black audiences, Moody maintained a policy of segregating his meetings. On the other side, reformist energy also seemed to die. Before and during the war, northern anti-slave advocates had relied upon the Bible almost as vociferously as did their pro-slavery southern counterparts. The Bible, for example, bulked large in Henry Ward Beecher's stem-winding sermons against the slave power. And it was a key theme in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. These and many other reforming appeals were filled with references from scripture about proclaiming freedom to the captive and standing fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. But once the sword of the spirit had slain the dragon of slavery, it went back into its sheath. Against the systematic racism of the mid-1870s, it was almost nowhere to be found. Thus, Henry Ward Beecher, after the war, became an advocate of Southern home rule and an opponent of federal authority to enforce Reconstruction. When Harriet Beecher Stowe from the 1870s began spending winters in Florida, she rapidly came to advocate sectional reconciliation and white supremacy. With only a few exceptions, influential Protestant leaders in the North turned aside from how they had used the Bible in the 1850s in order to emphasize sectional reconciliation at the expense of racial justice. Where the Bible continued to exert a public presence in 1876, that presence was negative. In the South, spokesmen for what was called the spirituality of the church argued that the mandates of scripture pertained exclusively to church bodies and not through the churches to society at large. For both Southerners and Northerners, preoccupation with questions of biblical criticism, as in the Briggs controversy, and questions of biblical prophecy, as with the Niagara Bible Conference, monopolized attention that earlier worked to shape the entire civilization by biblical values. It's immediately, admittedly speculation, but I think painstaking research would bear out the following narrative. The Civil War, which is widely recognized as the nation's supreme crisis, also precipitated a deep and broad theological crisis. Heated debates over whether scripture permitted slavery, which became intense from about 1830 and remained in play even after Confederate armies surrendered, raised momentous questions about the interpretation of individual biblical texts. Even more, they involved fundamental concerns about the overall purposes of scripture and the appropriate way of guiding Christian life by biblical standards. In many published works by authors both prominent and obscure, church leaders defined slavery as sinful or as not sinful but needing to be gradually eliminated or as entirely illegitimate and all claiming to reason from scripture alone. 
Antebellum America had looked to Scripture for a determinative word on slavery, but the strongest defenders of the authority of Scripture had delivered cacophony. The result was to make slavery, race, America's form of black-only racial slavery, and biblical interpretation itself into first-order theological problems. Yet rather than continuing to struggle with such questions after the war, the leading figures in the country's leading Protestant denominations became preoccupied with debates over biblical criticism or the interpretation of biblical prophecy, and certainly with some good reason. Issues of criticism raised by scholars like Briggs affected the ability to understand and appropriate, appropriate scripture. Academic fashions that subverted the supernatural message of scripture were naturally going to concern those whose very existence hung on that supernatural message. Yet from a broader angle, the decision to focus on criticism and prophecy left major questions unanswered. How, for example, could the integrity of the Bible best be maintained in the wake of interpretive strife over slavery? The main Protestant answer affirmed that taking the measure of higher criticism was a higher priority than determining how scripture might address race discrimination, burgeoning economic opportunity, and the conditions propelling industrial strife. The main actions of the most important denominations also implied that attending to questions of biblical higher criticism left scant time or energy to use scripture for addressing the social questions. So it was that when the nation's voters went to the polls on November 7, 1876, in an election that all observers knew would decide whether the lofty ideas of ideals of the Constitution's anti-slavery amendments would become a dead letter, the Bible of an earlier American civilization was barely in evidence. To be sure, the scriptures remained in active presence. Academic New York was still abuzz over Charles Briggs' inaugural address. Swamscott, Massachusetts was all set for the first gathering of the believers meeting for Bible study. But since these were the most visible expressions of biblical concern at that crucial moment in the nation's history, it is obvious that the public force of America's once formidable biblical civilization was spent. And so now a very rapid, uh, brief effort to try to make some historical and theological sense. Before the 1870s and 80s, or perhaps more exactly before 1876, and despite many powerful competitors, American civilization was shaped to an extraordinary degree by the King James Version of the Bible. After that time, despite much continuing recourse to scripture, America's Bible civilization entered an irreversible decline. The role of biblical criticism in this process was not unimportant, but it was neither primary nor preponderant. When the nation's ahistorical tradition of Bible usage met the new historical higher criticism, the result was the decline of America's Bible civilization. But the long history behind that fateful meeting was as important as the meeting itself. Yet if the Bible's character as a theological book is in view, then a lecture on the Bible delivered to a theology faculty must try to say more, particularly about two questions. First, what judgment should be offered about the clash between those who defended an ahistorical and errant Bible and those who advocated a historicist imminent scripture? American Bible interpreters at the end of the 19th century floundered because they were defending either the earlier static or the later developmental view of history. In this division, they were certainly following one important trajectory in modern Western history. 
Ever since Richard Simon and Baruch Spinoza popularized higher critical approaches in the late 17th century, recurring standoffs had taken place between those who treated the Bible, in Grant Wacker's phrase, as standing within history and those who saw it standing as outside of history. In such disputes, the competitors had regularly assumed that Scripture must be one or the other, either in history or out of history. But alongside the main trajectory had been a subordinate one that refused to take up those contrasting extremes on historical consciousness and Scripture. This other trajectory was made up of strong thinkers who in very different ways propounded recognizable versions of Christian orthodoxy that incorporated some aspects of historical consciousness. This minority lineup was distinguished, including for the 18th century, Jean-Baptiste Vico and Johann Georg Hamann, who preserved at least some loyalty to the biblical narrative that in Hans Frey's terms was being eclipsed by the error's enlightenment overconfidence. In the 19th century, it included F.G.A. Tolluck taking on David Friedrich Strauss, Soren Kierkegaard taking on Hegel, Adolf Schlatter taking on Trolch, and James Orr taking on Ritchell from his left and fundamentalists on his right. Perhaps most importantly, it included John Henry Newman, who opposed both static Catholic traditionalism and progressive British liberalism. In America, where the in or outside of history disagreement was intense, only a few figures like Henry Boynton Smith and Philip Schaff tried to say that historical consciousness was not like pregnancy. It was not a question of either or. The characteristic shared by many of this otherwise disparate group was the ability to define Christianity as an eternally fixed revelation from God and at the same time to view the faith as genuinely part of the human historical process. Strikingly, many of these same figures also positioned Christology at the center of their thinking. From that foundational center, they were able to see that as Christ was true, eternally unchangeable God and true, constantly changing humanity, so might the scriptures, which were written to encourage belief in the life-giving name of Christ, be viewed as both in and outside of history. In the latter part of the 19th century, the combatants over the character of the Bible needed a literal come-to-Jesus moment. The inerrantists, in order to affirm Christ's solidarity with humanity experiencing constant historical change, the historicists, in order to affirm Christ as the eternally constant expression of divine love. Theologically considered, the struggle that contributed to the decline of America's Bible civilization resulted from an artificial antinomy. Yet again, theologically considered, there's a second and even more pressing question that must be asked about the decline of America's Bible civilization. That question is whether this demise was a good thing or a bad thing. My own judgment, and speaking as a conservative Protestant who holds to the traditional view of the Bible as a uniquely inspired book of divine revelation, is decidedly mixed. From one side, the decline of America's Bible civilization left the broader culture bereft of a commanding moral center that could produce, at least occasionally, powerful voices of self-correction and self-admonition. Examples of such prophetic influence are rare, but they include the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, which pronounced divine judgment on the entire national history for the moral failure of slavery, and some of the speeches of Martin Luther King Jr., which defined a righteous path for the nation in powerful biblical terms. Yet from the other side, 
the collapse of America's Bible civilization opened up opportunities for genuine religious freedom that did not exist so long as that earlier civilization prevailed. It also presented a golden opportunity for Protestant believers to escape the enervating civil religion, crass demonization of opponents, stultifying hubris, hypocritical competitiveness, and manipulative power-mongering that have disfigured Bible believers at different times in American history. Considered in the theological terms framed by these two questions, we may conclude that America's Bible civilization declined because it was insufficiently biblical. Whatever should be considered about historical cause and effect, in theological terms, a Bible civilization must be evaluated by a biblical standard. In its traditions before 1876, in the advent of higher criticism in the 1870s, and in the fractured remnants of the Bible civilization that survived to the present, especially a Bible civilization, should be always remembering that the Word of God does not return void, but accomplishes what God pleases. Thank you.